people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump. A bipartisan immigration bill collapsed in on itself this week. How will it affect the presidential election? For Saturday, February 10th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we will look at that explosive special counsel report about President Biden and classified documents and what is and isn't comparable to the criminal case former President Trump is facing. We'll also check in on Hong Kong's economy. We know that there has been very few IPOs, very little activity in the financial sector. And we'll take a deep dive, not a deep dish, a deep dive into the pizza giants of Detroit and how sports played a role in their national rise. This is really a tale of two pizza kings when they were just wee pepperoni princes. First, these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Israeli military says it found a lengthy Hamas tunnel under the headquarters of the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees in Gaza. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, it's the latest Israeli accusation linking Hamas to the U.N. agency. The Israelis released a video of a tunnel they say is beneath the Gaza City headquarters of the aid group, known as UNRWA. The tunnel descends 20 yards and then runs for more than 700 yards. The Israelis took journalists into the tunnel and they described rooms filled with computer and electrical systems. The electricity for the computers came from the UNRWA compound above, according to Israel. UNRWA said in a statement it didn't know what was beneath its headquarters, but added that an independent inquiry was warranted. Israel recently accused a dozen UNRWA employees of taking part in the October 7 Hamas attack in southern Israel. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. After weeks of setbacks, a pared-down emergency aid bill for Ukraine and Israel is making some headway in the Senate. NPR's Amy Held reports after a late-night vote advanced the bill. Lawmakers are working this weekend to try to get it over the finish line. The bill provides $60 billion for Ukraine. Israel would get $14 billion. There's also humanitarian aid for Palestinians in Gaza and funding for allies to counter China. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's willing to make changes to get it through and vowed to stay in session until that happens. Republicans have long said they would only approve the aid abroad if it's paired with U.S. border security measures. But earlier this week, they rejected a bipartisan bill that did just that. Now a procedural vote is expected Sunday on the stripped-down bill. If approved, it would move on to the House, where GOP resistance to funding Ukraine is growing, two years into its fight against the Russian invasion. Amy Held, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump held a rally in South Carolina today ahead of that state's presidential primary later this month. NPR's Stephen Fowler has more. Trump spoke to an at-capacity crowd on the campus of Coastal Carolina University two weeks before the GOP presidential primary. He's heavily favored in the polls against former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Voters like Linda Janiscus say Trump is the better option for Republicans and the country. My retirement account was a lot higher when he was in office. And everybody knows that, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent. I mean, it's in black and white. During nearly two hours of remarks, Trump mocked Haley and President Joe Biden, reiterated hardline immigration proposals like mass deportations, and said the 91 criminal charges against him help his poll numbers. Stephen Fowler, NPR News, Conway, South Carolina. And Nikki Haley also campaigned in the state today. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Boston tied a record high of 60 degrees for February 10th, and that matches the highs hit last year and in 1990. But now a winter storm watch is posted from Monday night through Tuesday. The National Weather Service is expecting the storm to bring a significant amount of snow. Meteorologist Carl Peterson says snowfall totals will vary. From like Boston to Providence, we're kind of looking at like a widespread four to six inches. But as you go like west towards Worcester, then it increases pretty significantly. We could see 8 to 12 all the way up to into Worcester, the 495 corridor. Peterson says wind gusts up to 35 miles per hour could make travel difficult on Tuesday. Seiji Ozawa is being remembered by people at the Boston Symphony Orchestra's summer home Tanglewood in the Berkshires. The legendary conductor's death was announced yesterday. Nancy Cohen reports. Even as a young conductor, Ozawa's artistry grabbed attention. In 1959, at age 24, he won first prize in an international conducting competition in France, then came to the U.S. to study at Tanglewood. After directing symphonies in Toronto and San Francisco, he took the helm at the Boston Symphony. Tracy Wilson is a conductor at a community orchestra in Stockbridge. She worked in fundraising at Tanglewood when Ozawa was there and says he inspired musicians without saying a word. He would hunch, he would lift his arms, he would move, he would look, just like an athlete on the podium. In 1994, Tanglewood opened a concert hall named after him. Ozawa died Tuesday. He was 88. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. The U.S. Department of Labor says that GE Aerospace has agreed to resolve claims it discriminated against women who apply for jobs at GE's facility in Rutland, Vermont. GE Aerospace will pay $443,000 and extend job opportunities to some women. 59 degrees at 506. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. It has been a tough week for President Biden, arguably the toughest so far since he launched his re-election bid. There was a bombshell report from the Justice Department. It did clear him of criminal wrongdoing in his handling of old classified documents. But Special Counsel Robert Hur had a lot to say about Biden's age and his memory. And before that, Republicans in Congress tanked a bill that could have slowed the number of migrants coming across the southern border. That's another one of the president's biggest vulnerabilities heading into the election this November. NPR White House correspondent Deepa Shivaram joins us now to talk about how Biden is trying to talk to Americans about these issues. Hey, Deepa. Hey, Scott. So let's start with that report. The president ended his week taking some very uncomfortable questions like this one. That's, that's your memory has gotten worse, Mr. No, no. President? My memory is not My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. Look, Deepa, we have both talked to voters, and not just Republicans who are concerned yeah 
that Biden is too old for this job. With this report now, how does he deal with this? I mean, yeah, this is a tough hill to climb for the Biden campaign because it kind of confirms what a lot of voters are already thinking and feeling, Mm -hmm. right? We've met Republicans on the trail, Democrats on the trail who have talked about this, who have brought it up before I even could ask about it. So in response, the White House is trying to say that the details here about the president's age and his memory are basically irrelevant and inappropriate. Vice President Kamala Harris even said the report was politically motivated. And then at the same time, they're trying to highlight the contrast, right, between Biden and former President Trump, because at the end of the day, like you said, Biden isn't facing any criminal charges here on how he handled these classified documents versus Trump, who is facing several criminal charges. And they're also pointing to Trump and saying, you know, look at his mindset and how many things Trump says that are made up. Just last night, Trump gave a speech and the Biden campaign sent out a long list of things Trump said in his remarks that they called, quote, confused, deranged, lying or worse. And they really want people to pay attention to that. But polling shows that voters overall are more concerned with Biden's age and health than Trump's. Yeah, and let, let's rewind a little bit. This was one of those weeks where several things seemed like the story of the week. So much happened. <laughs> so rewrite, rewrite, let's talk immigration. Uh, Biden was trying to flip the script on Republicans on another issue where he's really vulnerable, and that's the border. Let's yeah. listen to this new message from Biden here. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump. I mean, for a while of his presidency, Biden wouldn't even say the the word Trump. He wouldn't talk about it. Yeah. What's with the change here? Yeah. I mean, Biden had agreed to this bipartisan border security bill, right, that was supposed to help stem the increasing number of migrants who are coming to the U.S. to seek asylum right now at rates much higher than the current system can manage. And as it became clear that Republicans were going to back out of this bill, Biden started going on offense, like you just heard from that clip. And this has been a big pivot because talking about the border, having a strong message on it has really not been a forte for Biden in the last several months and arguably ever in his administration. Mm -hmm. Polling shows that immigration is one of his weakest issues. And the most recent NPR, PBS, Marist poll showed that his approval rating on immigration is very low at 29 percent. But you'll have Trump attacking Biden on immigration, Mm -hmm. Biden attacking Trump on immigration. How does either message cut through and not just become the Spider-Man meme of two people (laughs) pointing at each other? Yeah, I talked to Alex Conan, who's a Republican strategist, about this. Yep, with the Spider-Man meme. He used to work for Senator Marco Rubio, and he said that before this week, Biden had no message on the border and was completely playing defense here. And even though he's now just blaming Trump, Conan says that that still may get Biden some traction with independent voters and also with Democrats in cities like New York and Chicago, where these mayors are grappling with large numbers of migrants who are looking for shelter and employment. Real quick, if Biden gets tougher on immigration with his rhetoric, does he risk alienating a base that needs to show up? Yeah, you know, there are some Democrats who are already saying they're really turned off by Biden's rhetoric here. I talked to one immigration advocate who was saying that it's basically going Trump light. And they have concerns, both about the concerns sessions that Biden was prepared to make to Republicans and about next steps. They want to see Biden take action and know what he's actually going to do on the border besides just point fingers at Trump. All of this ahead of an election that's going to be a pretty narrow contest. NPR's Deepa Shivaram, thanks so much. Thank you. The United Nations is pleading for increased humanitarian aid to Sudan, more than $4 billion in total. That's because nearly 10 months of war between Sudan's military and a powerful paramilitary group have devastated the country. Nearly 11 million people have been displaced, and 18 million people are facing acute food insecurity. One person trying to draw more attention to this is the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. She recently spoke with NPR's diplomatic correspondent, Michelle Kellerman, and they began by discussing the ambassador's last visit to a refugee camp in Chad to visit with Sudanese refugees, and how that experience changed how she talks about this conflict. 
it has changed how I've been talking about it because I've been talking about it. I feel that others have not spent enough time on this issue. I raise it on a regular basis, whether I'm meeting with the Secretary General or with the head of OCHA, with my colleagues in the Security Council. I do think as we're dealing with so many other issues around the world that we not let this slip through the cracks. And I really committed to the refugees and particularly the women that I met there that I was going to amplify their voices. You know, it it wasn't so long ago that the U.S. declared that there was a a genocide going on in Sudan and Darfur in the West. Um, But then when the longtime leader Omar al-Bashir was toppled, there was a lot of hope that this country was going to be able to turn a corner. What can the U.S. do to get that transition back on track? Or has this latest conflict really changed everything? It has changed everything, but it has not changed our commitment to pushing forward a civilian-run government in Sudan. And the most important step that any of us can take right now is to get these two generals to sit down at the negotiating table and negotiate a peaceful solution with civilians at the table with them. So the U.S. has imposed some sanctions on these warring sides, but that doesn't seem to be working. What are you telling President Biden that he could do to make more of a difference here and to push these two generals to uh, stop this war? You know, I think the sanctions are having an impact on them. They certainly are aware when I announced some of the visa restrictions when I was in Chad, they responded very, very quickly to that. But again, as you've noted, it has not stopped them from trying to fight because they both think that there's a military solution to this situation. And we know that uh, the military will not be able to resolve this situation. So we are working hard to push for negotiations, to push for more civilian engagement on this, but at the same time, trying to address the dire humanitarian situation that Sudanese citizens are experiencing. And has there been a a knock-on effect throughout the region? Because, you know, we have seen a number of coups in recent years in Africa. You have this war in Sudan. Are you worried about um, kind of this spreading? Uh, We are worried about it. We've seen a lot of backsliding, particularly as we look at the Sahel and and in West Africa, and it crosses all the way into Sudan. So it doesn't pretend well for democracy and for human rights and for freedoms that we all hold dear. So we really have to engage to find the path forward. As we kind of talked about before, there are so many um, conflicts that are on your agenda right now. I mean, there's the wars in Ukraine and in Gaza. Um, What's your big priority right now? You know, I I learned something from President Sirleaf. Uh, She used to talk about the priorities of the priorities. Uh, And so there's no priority that's more important than finding peace uh, in all of these countries. I can't put one ahead of the other. We're working on a daily basis to find a solution to the situation in in Ukraine, and we'll be having meetings on on that in the Security Council that uh, takes place on the 24th of February. Uh, We're working every day. As you know, the Secretary uh, Secretary Blinken was in uh, the Middle East this past week, meeting with our partners across the board. 
meeting with the Israelis, meeting with um, the Egyptians and the Qataris to find a path to a peaceful solution to the situation in, in Gaza, get the hostages out and get humanitarian assistance in. So I bounce from one crisis to another every single day and sometimes every single hour. I was just on that trip with Secretary Blinken. And, you know, if I could ask you briefly on on the war in Gaza, Israel seems to be turning its attention to the south, to Rafah, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are sheltered and they're already displaced by the fighting. Is the U.S. laying out any red lines for the Israelis on that? Because I know you've heard a lot of concern at the U.N. about that situation. Look, uh, we have been absolutely clear that under uh, the current circumstances in Rafah, a military operation now in that area cannot proceed, and it would dramatically exacerbate the humanitarian emergency that we're all seeking to alleviate right now. Israel has an obligation to ensure that their civilian population is safe and that they're secure and that they have access to humanitarian aid and to basic services. And I think you heard the secretary make those statements clearly during his uh, meetings uh, and in his uh, engagements with the press when he was there. And you must be hearing a lot of concern at the UN about that, right? I am hearing those concerns every single day. And what we have tried to do is keep our colleagues briefed on what is happening on the ground so that we don't take actions in the Security Council that might jeopardize the very sensitive negotiations that are taking place that we hope will lead to a, an extensive pause in the fighting, uh, lead to uh, hostages returning to their families, and allow for humanitarian assistance uh, to get into Palestinians who are in desperate need. That was Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield speaking with NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Regent Theater in Arlington, presenting a wide variety of music and dance concerts, independent film, and multicultural events. Tickets and info at regenttheater.com. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated but not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert. Tonight, tickets at TheUmbrellaArts.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Israel's military says it found a long Hamas tunnel under the headquarters for the UN Agency for Palestinians in Gaza. They say the rooms are filled with computers and electrical systems. It's the latest accusation tying Hamas to the UN Agency. 
The stock market is continuing a record-setting run. The S&P 500 closed above 5,000 for the first time. The recent gains reflect Wall Street's optimism about the U.S. economy. All three major indices ended the week higher, something that's happened five weeks in a row. And it's now the year of the dragon. The Lunar New Year began today. The holiday is celebrated in Asian communities around the world with fireworks, feasts, red envelopes stuffed with cash for young people, and often trips home to visit family. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with zinc ion technology. SmartMouth products can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at SmartMouth.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. It's Lunar New Year in much of Asia today. And in Hong Kong, people are finally celebrating in full. For the first time in four years, fairs and festivals are being held with no restrictions. But despite the lively atmosphere, people are worried about what the Year of the Dragon will bring. Cherise Pham reports. Hong Kong is ringing in the Year of the Dragon. And the city's largest Lunar New Year fair is in full swing. I think it's busier than, my, than what I expected because like, I feel like everybody is saying um, the economy is not good in Hong Kong, but then I think like in this Chinese New Year market, like people are willing to try new things. That's Candy Chang. She's selling cookies at the fair in Causeway Bay in central Hong Kong. Along with sweets and traditional snacks, there are also stalls selling flowers, decorations, and of course, toy dragons here. The Year of the Dragon is meant to bring wealth and good fortune for all, and Hong Kong could use some of that right now. After years of uncertainty and ongoing geopolitical tensions, business sentiment has soured in the city. Hong Kong was one of the first places in Asia to close its borders during the pandemic and one of the last to reopen. And right before COVID, the city was rocked by massive pro-democracy protests that shut down large parts of the territory for months. The last four years, you know, you've been here as well. It's, they've been very, very challenging. That's Syed Asim Hussein. He founded Black Sheep Restaurants, a hospitality chain that operates more than 40 restaurants across the city. Black Sheep is one of the industry leaders. And even our revenue, same, same store, is not maybe where they were 2018. Um, so there's work to do. There's work to do. And also, um, we've got to sort of rebuild uh, this reputation Hong Kong has. Rebuilding Hong Kong's reputation remains a work in progress. The government has been running campaigns, advertising that the city is open for business. It's time for all of us to say, hello, Hong Kong. But a recent survey from the American Chamber of Commerce found that members are worried about U.S.-China relations and overseas perceptions of Hong Kong. Only 35% of AmCham respondents said they were optimistic about Hong Kong's business outlook for the year ahead. That's the lowest in three years. Well, Ancham survey with 35% yeah, percent of respondents, only 35 being positive about Hong Kong, very much reflects, in my view, the, the hard data that we have about Hong Kong. 
which shows a very slow recovery post-COVID. Alethea Garcia Herrero is chief economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis, an investment bank. She says the economy is being hit by fewer visitors to Hong Kong and sluggish activity in the finance sector. And we know that there has been very few IPOs, very little activity in the financial sector. That is, of course, not helping growth. That means fewer financial deals for people like Chris Williams. He runs an independent law firm in Hong Kong and has lived and worked here for more than 30 years. My view, and it is just my view, this is possibly the lowest level I can recall for economic activity, particularly in the financial business sector, which I'm in, legal practice, legal services. The flow of transactional business, particularly M&A transactions, capital markets work, is down significantly. But others are more optimistic. George Chen is a managing director with the Asia Group, a consulting firm. He spent the last 20 years in Hong Kong and says the city has bounced back from other crises before, like SARS, the Asian financial crisis, and multiple protests. Uh, today's Hong Kong is probably not as good as what you expected previously, but it is also not as bad as what you read. I still have, have my face you know, in Hong Kong economy. Uh, partly, you know, maybe because I live here for so long, you know, people always say Hong Kong is probably one of the most uh, uh, resilient places in the whole world. Back at the fair, people here are also hopeful that the Year of the Dragon will bring a bit more luck and prosperity to the city. For NPR News, I'm Cherise Pham in Hong Kong. On this Super Bowl weekend, we're asking the question, what makes a great football movie? And here to help answer that question are Brittany Luce, the host of fellow NPR show It's Been a Minute. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. And and Stephen Thompson, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Scott. I know you're a big Packers fan. I'm sorry about the Kansas City <laughs> Chiefs kind of supplanting them in many fronts. I hope you're... I, I have no regrets. <laughs> it was a great season. <laughs> So look, sports movies are such a staple of American pop culture. You've got iconic basketball movies like White Men Can't Jump and I Will Add Space Jam. Boxing films, obviously (laughs) Rocky, many other examples. Baseball films, A League of Their Own, and many others. But Stephen, let me start with you. What makes a football film special in your opinion? I think the best ones are about more than just football. And so, you know, when we talk about a movie like uh, Brian's Song from 1971, uh, one of the like old, (laughs) it is to uh, a certain subset of film viewers what Old Yeller is to to kids. It is a a guaranteed tearjerker. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him too. And tonight, Hit your knees. Please ask God to love him. It is about the real-life friendship between uh, members of uh, my least favorite football team, the <laughs> Chicago Bears, um, Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers. And Brian Piccolo was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the film is about their friendship and the way their friendship unfolds. And it is more than just about football, even though it is about a real-life football team and real-life football players. It is 
capturing and trafficking in real human emotions in ways that really work for it. So for me, the football films that work best for me aren't just necessarily like we have mm-hmm, to win the big mm-hmm, game mm-hmm. or this plucky underdog, you know, can r- rise from the ashes or there's nothing in the rule book that says a mule can't kick a football uh, in an NFL game and win the Super Bowl, a la the 1976 film Gus. Um, I like football films that that are weaving in different storylines. What about you, Brittany? Okay, so I have a slightly different perspective because I don't watch football. I don't understand it. Uh-huh. Um, so it's not something that, like, it's not part of my daily life. What do you think the appeal of a sports movie is whether it's football or or any other sport why why do you think these movies work so well even with non-sports fans i think it's really similar to a good action film i'm not really that into action films but when i saw john wick and also when i saw the second <laughs> um, i never saw the first one admittedly to me it's like the, the the elements that make that film work or that make john wick films work are the same ones that make a good football movie work which is that there is a very clear goal And Mm -hmm. everybody knows what we have to do to accomplish it. It is like there is just a beautiful, simple story that is laid out in front of you. You know that it's about coming together or winning or not winning, but learning an emotional lesson. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to follow the gameplay or even understand what a snap is or a yard down. I don't know what any of that means. I don't know what any of that means. I don't know what any of it means. But it yeah, doesn't matter. There's a matter. scoreboard that shows you exactly where you are in the story. Exactly. I just think there's something that's so, like, it's so easy to root for and easy to get behind and easy to get swept up mm-hmm. in. The idea of there being this one big common goal that everybody's got to get on board with. All comes down to today. Either we heal as a team we're going to crumble. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, it, Brittany mentioned action movies. One of the most frustrating things in a lot of action movies is these like long, boring, expository sequences where all they're really trying to say is like, they have this MacGuffin and I want it. Yeah. Mm. You know, and so like, so they wind up building up 45 minutes of boring lore that nobody's going to remember. A sports movie cuts right to the heart of it. This team has X number of points. We need Y number of points. And it's it's it just keeps the story on rails in ways that are very that are very relatable. And anybody who's ever participated in any kind of athletic competition, I am not an athlete. I've never really competed in sports at any level outside of co-ed rec league softball, um, which I was very, very bad at. Um, you can still relate to it. If you've ever watched a sport on TV, if you've ever played a sport at any level, you understand kind of some of the feeling that goes into what it would be like to win or lose. And I think, and so I think it's, it's an extremely relatable pathway to a lot of emotion. I wonder if, what, what either of you make of this. We were thinking about this and I feel like kind of hasn't been a good football movie in a while. And the mm. last few football movies I can think of. We're really more about football fandom than football players. Mm. Silver Linings Playbook, that 80 for Brady movie. 80, 80 for, for Brady. Brady. I've yeah. seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, either of you have any thoughts on why that may be? I think, I, I mean, I'll say this as somebody who's very far far outside of football, something that I've seen really progress over the last 10 years, whether we're talking about um, racism within the league, mm-hmm. 
and the way some people think about the um, NFL combines, whether we're talking about some of the domestic disputes and instances of intimate partner violence that have been, you know, caught on tape or whatever of players and, and you know, their partners or um, or even you know, like all of the health risks that come along with playing uh, tackle football. Right, we just know like way more about CTE than we did before. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that there's, I think that like maybe in the 90s and the earlier 2000s, um, before a lot of those things entered the sort of mainstream consciousness, I think that it was easier to lionize football. And I think that you can feel that lionization all over a lot of the films that we've discussed um, as this, you know, perfect encapsulation of American pastime. I know baseball is America's pastime, but I also think American football kind of fits in there too. Um, and I just think now we know too much about the the risks associated with playing football or also some of like the, the not so nice underbelly of the celebrity machine and the like corporatization of the football league. I just think we know too much and it's hard to be able to look at the game the same way. I would also add that there's been a little bit of a hollowing out in the movie industry of mid-budget kind of uh, mm -hmm. kind of middle for lack of a better term middle class films uh, <laughs> films that aren't low budget indies and aren't big budget tentpole IP driven. Yeah. films. And so we've lost a lot of rom-coms. We've lost lost a lot of underdog sports movies. We've lost yeah. a lot of these kind of mid-tier movies that, that you know, you can imagine watching on basic, basic cable at two o'clock in the afternoon back before mm. streaming was a thing. I, I think that contributes to it as much as as any larger kind of self-awareness around football. And I think, Scott, you, you brought up something interesting in the question you asked, which was you mentioned that several of the most recent films have been about football fandom. You mentioned Silver Linings Playbook. You mentioned mm -hmm. 80 for Brady. One other film that I would throw out there that fits into that category, and I have to be careful when I talk about this because the, the writer-director is a friend of mine. There's a film called Big Fan oh, from yeah. 2009 that is, I think, as relevant to this Super Bowl as hmm. any any football film that has ever been made. Big fan is it stars Patton Oswalt as a as a super fan of the New York Giants. Let's go to my boy Paul in Staten Island. He always brings the leverage. Hey, sports dog. I can't tell you how sick I am of all these bozos hitting a receipt. Do you mind? Yes, I do. Go to bed, mom. And his life is upended when he's beaten up by his favorite player. Whoa. And if you want an examination of parasocial relationships with athletes and the way that fandom can be taken to extremes where it can subsume your identity and then leave you vulnerable to having your life upended, this film really gets at the heart of that. There is not a lot of gridiron action <laughs> in this film, but it is extremely relevant to a lot of the conversations that we have around these parasocial relationships with athletes. Stephen Thompson is a host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, and Brittany Luce is the host of NPR's It's Been a Minute. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In the Super Bowl tomorrow, the San Francisco 49ers will face the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs and their iconic quarterback Patrick Mahomes. So we're going to spend a few minutes talking about the other quarterback in the game, San Francisco's Brock Purdy. He was the very last player chosen in the 2022 draft, earning him the nickname Mr. Irrelevant because of how unlikely it would be he would ever play in the NFL. And he has done a lot more than that. As Steve Futterman reports from Las Vegas. When you are the last player chosen in the NFL draft. To make the final selection of the 2022 NFL draft. The odds are against you. Mr. Relevant 2022, the San Francisco 49ers select Brock Purdy, a quarterback from Iowa State. At Brock Purdy's home that day, there was celebration. And a few moments later, he received a congratulatory phone call from the 49ers general manager. Hey, buddy, this is John Lynch from the 49ers. Yes, sir. How you doing? Uh, I'm sorry it took till the end. Uh, we find you very relevant, but you are going to Purdy defied the odds by simply making the team as the third-string quarterback. Then something that was totally unexpected. Injuries to the top two quarterbacks pushed Purdy, a rookie, to the number one spot in just his 12th game. He responded. He's going to throw out right. Wide open, Kyle Juszczyk. Touchdown! Leading San Francisco to a big win over the Miami Dolphins. Mr. Relevant hits Kyle Juszczyk with a touchdown. This week here in Las Vegas, 49ers quarterbacks coach Brian Greasy said it was eye-opening. We loved what we saw in practice, but... Until you see it in the game, you don't really know. And so, yeah, yeah, it, that's why I say it was eye-opening, because it was. Purdy is the first to admit he doesn't look like a classic top-flight quarterback. Yeah, I don't have the, the strongest arm in the world. I may not be making crazy, flashy plays like other guys around the league. Purdy didn't even start tackle football until he was 12. Before that, he played flag football, which forces a player to utilize quickness. Purdy has a remarkably calm demeanor. Sometimes in the huddle, he does impressions to relax the team. On Monday, he showed off his SpongeBob impression. <laughs> Being picked last, he says, never phased him. I got drafted last. You know, I, I didn't really know what my future looked like or anything, and I took that opportunity and did everything I could to make the team. He has earned respect from Sunday's opposition. Joe Blameyer is the passing coordinator with the Chiefs. It's a tough mountain to climb to try to prove yourself every single day and overcome um, just some preconceived notions that come with being drafted last. Everybody else is given more opportunities, more leeway. He's got a shorter leash. He's got to be perfect every time he comes out. No one has ever questioned the potential of Kansas City's quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. He was the 10th player chosen in his draft year, and he's already won two Super Bowls. Mahomes has followed Purdy for years. It's extremely inspiring, but for me, I mean, I, I've seen Brock play since he was in college and knew how good he was. And he, he was a winner, and he, he, he made plays happen all through his college career. Nearly two years later, John Lynch, the San Francisco general manager, is just happy Purdy was available with that final pick. Shame on every, everyone for waiting so long, including us, you know. Uh, I think he's proven that he probably should have been drafted a lot higher, but um, I'm just grateful we have him. I really am. On Sunday, Brock Purdy will be as relevant as any player on the field. For NPR News, I'm Steve Futterman at the Super Bowl in Las Vegas.
This is NPR News. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. This is WBUR. Boston tied a record high of 60 degrees for February 10th, and that matches the highs hit last year and in 1990. But now a winter storm watch is posted from Monday night through Tuesday. I'm Susan Levy, 58 degrees at 539. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And Becoming a Man at ART, a world premiere play about the courage and the community we need to become ourselves. Starts February 16th amrep.org and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Senate negotiators are working this weekend on a pared-down bipartisan bill to give military aid to Ukraine and Israel, along with humanitarian aid for Gaza. A procedural vote on the measure is expected tomorrow. If approved, it would move on to the House, where GOP resistance to funding Ukraine is growing. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the Israeli military to prepare to evacuate the city of Rafah in southern Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have sought shelter to escape the war. And Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher says he won't run for a fifth term in Congress. This just days after he refused to vote with his fellow House Republicans to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. This is a persecution. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It's time for Trump's trials. And it was a big week in the Trump legal world. And for the former president trying to be the future president, It was a week with mixed results. First, a federal appeals court ruled that Donald Trump does not have blanket immunity and can be criminally prosecuted in the January 6th federal election interference case. Then on Thursday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Colorado ballot case. The justices appeared skeptical of Colorado's argument that Trump should be barred from the presidential primary ballot on the basis that he engaged in an insurrection. And finally, although it is not one of Trump's cases, it is worth mentioning the release a few hours after those arguments of the special counsel's report on President Biden's own handling of classified documents. The report exonerated Biden, but also called into question Biden's memory, opening the door for Trump and his allies to draw inaccurate comparisons to his own case regarding classified documents and also criticize Biden for his age. Remember, in the Trump documents case, he refused to hand over classified documents. 
Eventually, the FBI raided his Mar-a-Lago home, where they found boxes and boxes of classified documents all over the place and evidence that they were stored at one point in a bathroom, among other places. Trump is facing 40 criminal charges in this case. So today, we are going to focus on that report from the special counsel about Biden and what comparisons between Biden and Trump are fair and which ones aren't. I spoke about it with NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro and former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general Harry Littman. I started by asking Domenico how this latest report does and does not affect Trump's classified documents case. Well, I mean, number one, you know, the just having this report in the first place, Trump is able to muddy the waters and say this case is a thousand times different and a thousand times worse, <laughs> even though the opposite is true as far as what was in the 385 page report and as far as the facts go. Because Biden cooperated and Trump didn't. Well, I mean, and you also didn't have, you know, uh reams and reams of boxes, right? I mean, this is a lot different. There were lots more documents in the Trump case that were marked, uh, you know, top secret and classified and all of that. Biden had a couple of papers that were marked top secret. Most of the classified stuff were his own handwritten notes from the time that he was supposed to give back and never did at that time. But he did cooperate, right? And Trump wouldn't, the bottom line here is Trump would not be prosecuted either, most likely, if he had just given all the stuff back right. and had cooperated. The FBI had to go to Mar-a-Lago to get it. Yeah. And they had to have an informant on the inside. I mean, it's a totally different situation um, as far as, you know, having this material and sharing this material. But as one Democratic strategist who I talked to earlier today, Paul Begala, who a lot of people know who worked for uh, Bill Clinton, said that this report clears him legally and kneecaps him politically. Harry, let me put it to you this way. What do you think are fair comparisons between the Biden document situation and the Trump document situation? And what do you think are unfair comparisons? I mean, in a word, the whole the whole report is overwrought, way more detailed than you needed uh, to reach the result. He did a comparison because you want the uh, DOJ to treat like cases like is not uh, illegitimate. What was gratuitous and stinks were these uh, shots at his memory, which masqueraded as maybe this would make it harder to convict because the jury would see him as a doddering old man. You know, in other words, the perfect complement to Trump's political points and the things that, that give voters the most doubt about Biden. They had no business in that report, and it's very hard to see it that way. That part of it is of a piece with Comey's trashing Clinton and is really wrong as a matter of DOJ policy and even generally. Harry, last question on this to you. Obviously, there are enormous political implications of this report. Did you see anything in this report that came out this week that could affect the actual trial and the actual case against Trump on the documents front, which, remember, includes 40 criminal charges and also, remember, is the case that seems the furthest off from actually going to trial at this point of time due to a range of reasons? On the substance, the short answer is no. Okay. It really is not relevant. Let's end with this. Question to both of you. Dominica, we'll start with you. Did anything that happened this week fundamentally change what is happening with the cases or what is happening with the election? I mean, I think that this was a confirming situation when it comes to Joe Biden and his memory and his age. I mean, clearly his age has been the biggest issue. It's not getting any 
easier for Democrats or for Biden because he's not getting any younger. Every day that goes by is another reminder. And this is the thing with Biden is like he's always been gaff prone. Yeah. Like it's not just an age thing. He's never been a great messenger for the Democratic Party. And it makes it very difficult. And when you have this kinds of paragraphs in a in a in a prosecutor's report that comes out from the DOJ, it's just fodder for Republicans to be able to sort of dunk on him. So, Harry, whether it was the appeals court ruling the Supreme Court oral arguments or this uh, special counsel report, what to you fundamentally changed uh, the tracks of things, if anything? The immunity opinion, huge, much stronger than than we might have known. We didn't know what was coming and will have reverberations down the line. That is the big news of the week in Trump land. Harry Littman, Domenico Montanaro, thanks to both of you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks. The Super Bowl is tomorrow, and for many viewers at home, it is not about the football or even the halftime show or the commercials. It is about the food. You may not be surprised to hear that Super Bowl Sunday is one of the biggest days of the year for pizza sales in America. But maybe you don't know this. A large portion of the money that Americans will spend on pizza this weekend will wind up in one state, Michigan, the chain pizza capital of the world. That's right. The headquarters for Domino's, Little Caesars, Jets, and Hungry Howie's all started and remain in Southeast Michigan. Little Caesars is the official pizza sponsor of the NFL, but the connection between chain pizza and professional sports runs a whole lot deeper than that. The cheesy history of American chain pizza is documented in the podcast series Doe Dynasty from Michigan Public. The co-hosts are April Bear and Laura Weber Davis, who join me here today. Hey there. Hi. Hey there. So when we're talking pizza and when we're talking professional sports, where should we begin? The most obvious answer is during the era known as the Pizza Wars, when advertising by these companies just completely exploded, the late 80s and the early 90s. Right, exactly. So like sporting events get eyeballs, eyeballs watch commercials, and well, pizza jumped into the fray. Two great pizzas for one low price. Pizzas to fall in love with. Hot, delicious pizza. Pizza, pizza. 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 Dripping with pure mozzarella cheese. Just dripping with it. But (laughs) this is really a tale of two pizza kings when they were just wee pepperoni princes. It all began when the founders of Domino's and Little Caesars were just kids. Mm -hmm. Before they were into pizza, Tom Monahan of Domino's And Mike Illich of Little Caesars grew up loving the Detroit Tigers. Monaghan, he wrote in his autobiography that actually reading about the Detroit Tigers games in the newspaper in the 1940s brought him joy during some pretty dark days living in an orphanage. And Little Caesars founder Mike Illich, a Detroit native, actually played some minor league ball for the Tigers farm team in the early 1950s. So both Illich and Monaghan had this emotional connection to this team. Okay, so I love baseball and I also love pizza. But when it came to the two of them, how did baseball and pizza blend together? I would say it's more like pizza blended sports on in. Like a sports topping on the pizza. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Both the guys had the idea to get into pizza around the same time, right around 1960, and got in on that hot trend of franchising. Mm -hmm. And then by the 80s, Americans had really fallen in love with pizza. It was definitely here to stay. And both Domino's and Little Caesars were just doing great on the national stage with a lot of rapid expansion. Yeah, exactly. And so Tom Monahan and Mike Illich, they were becoming really, really wealthy. And both these founders started spending all that money. They both go after the ownership of the Detroit Tigers at the same time. 
Tom Monahan wins the bid in 1983. Yeah. So we talked to a veteran Detroit Free Press journalist. He was a sports reporter in the 80s. His name was Bill McGraw. Most owners, you never see them. He says Tom Monahan was a bit of an enigma in the press box. Uh, Monahan, on the first day of spring training, was not only at spring training, but he was dressed in a Tiger uniform, fulfilling one of the childhood fantasies of his and many young Michiganders. He played catch with Al Kaline. And that just was so out of the ordinary. He came across, while he was a tremendously successful businessman, he came across as a little goofy. He might call that goofy, but I just want to say that is absolutely what I would do if I bought a professional <laughs> sports team. Well, you're not alone. I mean, maybe it doesn't seem that strange to us, but it was for this business guy to be on the field of Tiger Stadium that he owned now. Mm-hmm. But he was out there living his boyhood fantasy. And so in 1984, the Tigers won the World Series. And Scott, like you maybe know, that win was a huge deal with fans in Detroit. The 84 Tigers, people still talk about them as one of the best teams assembled in the game. And at the time, this was the first championship for Detroit since 1968. And on the night of the World Series win, the city just loses its mind. Yeah. Okay. So in our podcast, we covered that moment, which was a really big one for Monaghan in multiple ways. First the pitch. He swings on this. A fly ball to left. Here comes Herndon. He's there. He's got it. The Tigers are the champions of 1984. And just like that, the electricity in the city explodes. The celebration goes on for hours. But at some point, things outside get a little rowdy. Here's reporter Paul Eisenstein at the scene for NPR. The fans began pounding on hood, smashing windshields. There, the situation quickly got out of control. A riot, led by white suburbanites, takes over the streets surrounding the stadium. A half dozen police cars were rolled over, set ablaze. The fans pelted police with beer bottles and stones and anything else they could find. The stadium goes on lockdown, leaving players, their families, the press, some fans stuck inside. And maybe you're like, okay, but what does this have to do with pizza? Well, what do you do when you're stuck somewhere with a bunch of hungry people and you need to feed the masses? You order pizza. And in this case, if you're a Detroit Tiger, you know a guy, Tom Monahan. The team owner also happens to own Domino's and a helicopter. Monahan calls up his pilot and is like, get over here. We have an issue. The chopper lands on second base, and then Monahan sends him off to Ypsilanti to go and secure dozens of Domino's pizzas for these world champions. The helicopter flies back to the city, feasibly in fewer than 30 minutes, and they make the ultimate delivery. I cannot picture this scene. I can. This is so over the top. I mean, he's, he's kind of the Elon Musk of his time. You know, why not? Let's do it. Yeah. And Scott, remember, it's the 80s. It was. Okay, but the story of the day was really about the championship, I guess. So Monahan, though this championship was a big deal for baseball, he actually credits that win and those Tigers for making Domino's a truly household name. Meanwhile, Mike Illich, the father of Little Caesars, was still craving a sports team of his own. Mm -hmm. He couldn't have the Tigers, but he could totally have the Dead Wings. The Dead Wings? That is not the name of the hockey team. (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that. You know, publicly, they're they're called the Dead Wings. 
as you may infer from what Mike Illich said, the team was not doing well. The Red Wings owner at the time, Bruce Norris, was getting booed by fans at games. And Mike Illich is thinking, this could be done better. Uh, we weren't sure if we could afford it, but I said, I'm going to try, Marion. And uh, so they had a couple other bids in there, but they said, decided to go with us. And we were, we were lucky. It was timing. And uh, never dreamt it would be able to afford the team. And he had a, a sterling reputation when he bought the Red Wings. In fact, Red Wing fans um, have been described as like a cult. You know, the Red Wings have been around since the 20s. It's a real intense hockey atmosphere, and they had nothing to cheer for for a long time. And, and so this guy who has already had a track record in sports in Detroit buys the Red Wings, and Red Wing fans were ecstatic. When Mike Illich bought the team, he was basically like, look, I'm not afraid to spend money on winning, whatever it costs. I'm going to dump money into this thing for championships and trophies and show this city what team ownership is all about. And he completely turned the team around. And here's the real twist. A few years after that 1984 World Series win, Tom Monahan decided to sell the Tigers to the Illich family. So today in Detroit, the Illich family still holds both teams. There are Little Caesars logos all over the facilities for both the Tigers and the Red Wings. So the Red Wings, they actually now play in a new facility, downtown Detroit. And the arena is actually called... Scott, can you guess? Mm, I'm going to put one guess here. Perhaps Little Caesars Arena? Yes, mm. Little Caesars Arena. Okay. <laughs> Some Michiganders call it the pizza arena. <laughs> so really the love affair between professional sports and pizza, it doesn't start with football or the Super Bowl. It began, as far as American chain pizza is concerned, with baseball and hockey. Sports, pizza, money. It's basically an American love story, Scott. It's my favorite food and my two favorite sports. That's April Bear, one of the hosts of Doe Dynasty. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, what? What? Before we go, Scott, every yes. single conversation we've had for this series, we need you to tell us how you like your pizza. Yes. How do you take your pizza, Scott Detrow? <laughs> America needs to know. Oh, my goodness. I w I'm going to answer your question. I will start off like a politician. I truly love all forms of pizza at different <laughs> points of time. Absolute, absolute, like, platonic ideal of pizza. When I think about pizza in my head, I am thinking about crispier, thin crust pizza with a lot of pepperoni on it and just the level of grease that, like, you've got kind of the grease pools the cup, in the pepperoni. Yeah, the cup. yeah, as that is my favorite kind now of pizza. Now you're talking. That's April Bear and Laura Weber Davis, co-hosts of the Doe Dynasty podcast from Michigan Public. Special thanks to podcast.